a little bit louder? Do you control that back there? Or do I need to move it up? If I move it up, it might, I don't know, might interfere. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for another beautiful day here at this beautiful resort, and we thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to ponder your way of thinking. You have invited us to come now and reason together with you, and so we're here to look at your thoughts and your words and and examine your expressed will regarding this very politically charged issue that we're dealing with in this seminar. So we pray that your spirit will be here. We know spiritual things are spiritually discerned and we uh, seek the spirit's guidance and uh, we thank you for uh, your promises that he will lead your people into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, today we're going to um, look at a, um, why should I say, a remedy. Uh, we get accused of sometimes of teaching uh, reparative therapy or change therapy, conversion therapy and those things. But you know, as Christians, do we not all believe in conversion? I mean, we all go through a conversion experience. Uh, we... Uh, have shared our testimonies, and uh, we hope that you've been inspired by how the Lord has worked in our lives and led us to where we are today. Uh, but as, um, as I said earlier, our purpose is, is not only to inspire, but to enlighten and equip, because so many people don't do anything regarding the gay issue because they don't know what to do and they have loved ones, or there may be someone in the church, and uh, they don't know what to do, so they fall back on just the love and acceptance, which is only a small portion of the gospel. Um, I, I believe, from my study, uh, that the gospel, of course, in, incorporates the love of God. God is love. And we, we have learned, though, through our counsel that Acceptance with God is conditional. It's not unconditional. It's conditional upon an entire surrender of the will. When you apply for a job, there are conditions for your being accepted into that job. When you apply to go to school, there are conditions. If you apply to join some country club, there are conditions. Acceptance comes with conditions. And so in, in our ministry, we go beyond just love and acceptance because acceptance is based upon surrender, entire surrender of the will and a desire to enter into the discipleship of Christ, which means presenting your bodies a living sacrifice and, and letting this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Um, a Christian is one who wants to be like Christ. Um, and so we enter that school of discipleship and... Um, and, uh, and follow his mentoring, his lead. What I want to share with you today is how the Lord led me out of the gay life. Uh, and I didn't know all of this until I sat down and I was asked to write my book 
And I told my story, but the last chapter of the book is called You Too Can Be Made Whole. It turns the attention, the focus of the book then to the reader to make application. And I started rehearsing, what was it? How was it? What was the process the Lord led me through uh, to get my attention, to hold my attention, to convict me, to convert me, and now to sustain me in my new life and walk with him these 24 and a half years. Uh, yeah, about 25 years now. So uh, I hope that you will find this to be very helpful. If you want to take notes, uh, we're going to go through uh, a number of steps the Lord led me through. Um, they're also in the last chapter of my first book. And this is just a presentation based upon that, but there's a lot more information in the book. And I call this uh, presentation Live Free and Stay Free. As I was studying my way out of the gay life and I was under great conviction to accept Jesus, um, I, had, I had become friends with a fellow who was in the SBA kinship movement. Did this mic just go off? Anyway, he was trying to get me back into the church by incorporating, uh, by getting me involved in church music because I had been a church mu musician in the past. Actually, I was introduced to SBA kinship through a surgeon. I had a ruptured appendix and almost died, and I lived right across the freeway from uh, Glendale Adventist Hospital. And I was rushed to the hospital uh, and went into emergency surgery, and somehow the surgeon, who was an Adventist, figured out that I was gay. And I wondered about that. It had to be the partner that went with me. It couldn't have been me. Why would he think I was gay? It must have been my partner. <laughs> anyway, he found out that I was gay. And somehow, you know, when you go under anesthesia, there's no telling what you're going to say. <laughs> and I remember, you know, joking with him as I was going out. I was joking. I was laughing. I'd been in a hang gliding uh, uh, in landing my hang glider, I got caught in a tailwind and, and kind of landed on my knees instead of the regular landing and, um, and, and shredded my knee and I had all these stitches in my knee and some of them I couldn't get out and, and so I remember telling him, while you're, while you're taking out that appendix, would you take out those stitches and, you know, and I was just going all over the place. And there's no telling what I said, but anyway, he, he knew that I had been an Adventist. When I came out of surgery, he knew that I had been an Adventist <laughs> at one time, so I have no idea what all I was telling him. So he brought in another doctor um, uh, that um, was going to be the follow-up physician with me, and he uh, introduced him, and he said, you know, you, you need to be back in the church, and, uh, and it's okay if you're gay. I mean, this doctor, he's gay and he's an Adventist and, and that's, and then they introduced me to SDA kinship and they tried to evangelize me through SDA kinship. Uh, do you all know what that is, by the way? Oh, I'm rattling on. I told some of you yesterday, but SDA kinship is an organization of Seventh-day Adventists who are gay and they have the same political agenda that you see in the world. They are very determined and very aggressive in their agenda to bring homosexuality into the church, to have it embraced by the Adventist church. 
And so um, they tried to convert me through SDA kinship. Well, I would have none of that. I became friends with a lot of them, and I went to some of their functions, but as long as I was gay, I was not going to be an Adventist. I knew, I knew enough to know that I could be gay or I could be an Adventist, but I could not be a gay Adventist. To me, that was an oxymoron. I mean, it's like being a pothead Adventist or an adultering Adventist or a, you know, a, drug, a druggy Adventist, whatever. I, I wouldn't do that. But I became friends with these people, and this one fellow was a minister of music in that same church, and uh, we became good friends. But as I was coming out of that, and I was going to leave California, and I told him that I was accepting the Lord, and I was going to leave the gay life, this is what he said to me. I'm going to keep, be keeping my eye on you. By the way, he had been a Seventh-day Adventist pastor of a very large Adventist church in Central California that um, Doug Batchelor had been pastoring for a number of years now, but he had been the pastor there. And he had left his wife and children and turned his back on the, on the ministry uh, and went go, in going into the gay life, and he still wanted to be an Adventist, but he was um, a gay Adventist. So this is what he said, I'm going to be keeping my eye on you, and if you last for two years in the straight world, I may not be quoting him exactly, but he's basically saying, if you can make it for two years, then he said, I know there's hope for me too. Um, and maybe he'd be able to do the same. That was very revealing to me. He was under conviction. He had regrets. He had remorse. And he was going to watch me and see if I could be successful in my journey back into the faith and away from the gay life. And in um, Toronto, Canada, at the general conference uh, in Toronto, Canada, a few years ago, I ran into him. And I, um, I cornered him. And I sat him down. And I said, we need to talk. And I reminded him of the conversation we'd had. And oh, he remembered it. He remembered it very well. And um, I said, remember, uh, you know, David, you told me it was, uh, you'd be watching me for two years. And he said, yeah, I remember. I said, well, it's been nine. It's been nine. It's time for you to come back home. And sadly, he said, I'm not interested. You know, it's almost like his time had passed. I'm not interested. I'm an officer now in the SDA kinship. In fact, he's the one who lobbies the church to try to get the general conference and the, you know, the church to embrace homosexuality. So he goes around to the general conference sessions and the various conventions and so forth, and he's always passing out literature and trying to convert the church, rather, you know, to get the church to change its position rather than the sinner changing his behavior. That's backwards to me, so it's really sad. But, you know, I, I really, feel badly for him. It's now been almost 25 years and I've never gone back. And these people that I used to know in kinship, um, I, I would hope that they would take notice that there is a way out of that. But unfortunately, most of them are very opposed to what I do because I contradict their message. But here are the things. Uh, the first thing that I realized before I ever came out of the gay life, number one, as I was studying, you, you heard how I studied, right? Last, yesterday? Yeah. Don't any of you do that? Uh, yeah, but that's not how I studied with my margaritas and my cigarettes, remember? Don't any of you do that. But 
but while I was, but see, the gay issue was not the number one issue. As I was reading Steps to Christ, I fell in love with Jesus. And so the gay issue with someone may be way down the list of things the Lord's going to work on. Uh, Jesus himself said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I have people come to me, and maybe some of you have the same question. How do I get, you know, rescue my son or my daughter or my sister or somebody from the gay life? And my first question is, are they Christian? And uh, usually the answer is no, they don't want anything to do with God. And so I say, well, then don't worry about them being gay. That's just to get their attention, right? Don't worry about them being gay. That's not where you need to start. Seek ye first. Lead them to Jesus. Help them see Jesus in you and so forth and so on. As I read that book, uh, Steps to Christ, I realized God's great love for me. First um, John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. And when you read John 3, 16, for God the Father, it's talking about God the Father. This is a paraphrase. So loves you, the whoever, the drug addict, the gay person, the adulterer, the murderer. God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him and whosoever means even Ron Woolsey should not perish but have everlasting life. And, and we have quoted this text of scripture from childhood to the point we sometimes don't even stop to really think carefully about it. But it's very, very deep and meaningful. And uh, this passage in Romans, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for whom? The ungodly. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So God demonstrated his love for us while we're in our degradation. As we read about Jesus, we, we see the love of God for us in our lost condition. And as I really focused on the love of God, it, um, it started really touching my heart. And I like this passage from Jeremiah very much. As, as with Jeremiah, God can say of you or me, before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. That to me is just so profound. And I'll just say, I believe that from the time we are conceived, Satan knows we're on the way. I mean, he's far advanced in his science and all that. So uh, he knows we're on the way. And I believe that Satan has a customized plan for every one of us from the day he knows we're on the way. And he starts putting things in motion before you're ever even born because he's going to do everything he can to derail you. However, God also has a customized plan for our lives. He says, before, now Satan knows when we're on the way, but God says, before you're on the way. Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. That text means so much to me for this reason. I could very easily have been an abortion or a miscarriage. I mean, when I think about all that I did to reproach God in my life, he didn't have to let me be born. But this text says, I knew you before you were born, which means I knew what you would be, I knew what you would do, but I love you anyway, and I have plans for your life, and I will do everything I can to, to bring you back from the way, you're going, the way you go and use you if I can. And, and so when I read texts like this, it, 
they start instilling within me value, self-worth. A lot of people that are caught up in addictions and of whatever, uh, they have very low self-esteem. And they're drowning their sorrows and they're trying to mask something and they may be dealing with a perception of rejection and they're doing all kinds of things to drown that out or to find acceptance in one way or another. But when you start realizing how much God loves you, then doesn't that add value to your existence and give you some sense of self-worth? And I started thinking that way. So the next thing I did, I had to face myself. And when you face yourself honestly and evaluate where you are, um, you know, when you face the law of God, it's like a mirror and you, you see where your needs are. I like this passage in Isaiah 118 where God says, come now and let us reason together. To me, that is an amazing invitation. God has created us with minds that can reason with him. And, you know, there are people, the elite, intellectual elite, that look down their noses at people like us, maybe, because, oh, we could never commune, communicate with them on their level. Yeah, right. If God says, come now, let us reason together, I think we could reason with anyone. And if we can't understand what they're saying, it's because it's, well, <laughs> it's because they probably don't either. I'll just put it that way. You know, I sometimes say this because I, I don't have a PhD, um, so I, I'm kind of joking around about this, but, you know, the gospel really, friends, is so simple, a child can understand it, and I think it takes a PhD to really confuse it, <laughs> to, to put it out of reach to so many people. Um, but, no, I'm not faulting PhDs. It's a wonderful thing to have. But you look at the Apostle Paul, I mean, with all of his intellect and and his learning. You read the writings of the Apostle Paul and, and you wonder, why doesn't this guy know where to put a period at the end of a sentence? I mean, you have to get to the whole chapter to find a place to put a period. Jesus, Jesus could tell a whole parable in one verse that is so simple anyone can understand that has spiritual discernment and also so profound that every time you read it, you learn something else. Uh, that to me is just amazing. But I love it that God says, come now, let us reason together. And then he says, though your sins be as scarlet, you know the passage, they shall be as white as snow, uh, and so forth. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to, in other words, his way is reasonable. And, and as I studied, I began to see, reading Steps to Christ, I thought, how foolish I have been. When I read in that chapter 5 where I was putting out the cigarettes that God's plan for my life far exceeded anything I could even imagine for myself, I felt like I had been a fool for all of those years, focused on self, trying to advance self, you know, self-glory, self-advancement, self-gratification, self, self, self. But heaven's way is all heaven is looking out for my happiness. Why do I need to worry about it? If I focus outward, I join the happiness club, you know, and, and all of God's people, aren't we interested in each other and each other's happiness and joy and fulfillment? And that's, I, I felt so foolish that I had spent all of those years focusing on this number one instead of that number one. 
And when you study these things, it is very reasonable and very logical. The third thing uh, that I had to do was to acknowledge <laughs> my sin. I don't know where you can see that. I wish that were a clear picture. I, I found other pictures to replace it, but I like that one the best. I mean, does that puppy look guilty or what? <laughs> and I have had dogs just like that. I have one now, a great big dog. When he comes to me, he grins, and I think, what have you been up to now? You know, a grinning dog, doesn't he look guilty? Anyway, number three, acknowledge your sin. All of those years I was in the gay life, I was defending it. I was born this way, once gay, always gay. My dad did this, and this guy did this to me when I was four, and I could, I mean, uh, and I prayed that God would take the gay away, and he didn't, so I was defending. It was everyone else's fault but my own. But when I got to the point where I could acknowledge that this was a sin issue rather than some acceptable alternative lifestyle, that it was a sin issue according to the Word of God, that's when things started really making sense because... We know all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then I go back to Jeremiah 3, where God says, Only acknowledge thine iniquity. And then I'll jump down to the last part. But the whole passage is good. And I will heal your backslidings. In other words, as long as we are blaming someone else and defending our situation, I call it self-justification, God cannot justify you if you're busy justifying yourself. I know I'm blocking the screen. Maybe if I just walk back and forth, you get it, right? But I don't do that very well. <laughs> but as long as we are blaming others, we're really justifying self, and God cannot justify us when we're already justifying ourselves, or trying to anyway. And so when I acknowledge and I begin to realize this is a sin issue, according to the Word of God, this is abomination. It is sin. That's when things started kicking in and started making sense. And I applied the remedy, the Bible remedy for sin, and eventually was able to turn and walk away. Because there's, well, I'm jumping ahead. I'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> um, if we will but confess our sins, God is faithful and just to not only forgive our sins. By the way, forgiving a sin is justification. All Christians believe in justification, right? All Christians claim forgiveness and pardon and love and acceptance and mercy and patience and all of that. And they like to put a period at the end of that. If, I, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, period. Have you ever seen a bumper sticker that says forgiven? Have you ever seen one that says cleansed? The rest of the passage says, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I was at a church a while back, and I saw in the window of the pastor's study, there was this big placard that says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. I thought, there's something wrong with that. Because all Christians believe in forgiveness, but do all Christians believe in cleansing, sanctification, overcoming, Victory, perfection of character, that's where I always get into trouble when I talk about perfection of character, but, but that's God's work. He promises to do that in his people. And friends, that's in our message. 
It is the Seventh-day Adventist message that gave me what I needed to turn and walk away. We have, we have in our possession a treasure that the whole world needs. And so many of us don't acknowledge that treasure, don't appreciate that treasure, and we fall into the general Christian club of just forgiveness, love and acceptance, but not the cleansing, because that's legalism when you teach cleansing. Well, I'll tell you, if I didn't believe in cleansing, I'd be a gay Adventist, I suppose, which to me is still an oxymoron. <laughs> you know. um, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us Amen. from all unrighteousness. That means to change us, to recreate us into his image and into his character. Uh, God wants us to be clean not just forgiven. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time over in Romania, 22 times I've been in Romania. We've done uh, work over there supporting uh, pastors and Bible workers and so forth. And, uh, and in the beginning of those days, we'd see these street urchins from Bucharest, these grimy, you know, little kids that are put out of their homes because they, uh, the parents can't afford to feed them and take care of them anymore. So they put them out on the streets. Five years old, they're out scrounging for food like animals. And they sleep all day in the train stations and so forth because it's safe when there are lots of people milling around. And then at night, they come out like nocturnal animals and they do their scavenging in the trash cans and everything looking for food. When you look at those kids, I mean, you can't help but love them. And, and I've often thought, if I could adopt one of those kids, just adopt one of them, I mean... Why? Because I, I love them. But would I leave him there? If I love him, you know, if I were to adopt him, and aren't we adopted into the family of God, I'd bring him home and I'd strip him of his clothes and burn him and soak him in the tub for a week and shave his head and de-louse him and deworm him and, you know, all of that. Give him new clothes and a clean bed and, and an education and good food and and all of that. It's not enough to just love. The whole plan of adoption is about giving someone a better life. Amen. And that's what God wants to do with all of us. We are like the little street urchins of Bucharest, and we don't even realize it. They don't realize it. A lot of times when they're taken out of there and, and given a place to go, they run away and go back to the streets because that's all they know. They don't know how desperate they really are. Number four, I began to realize that salvation was for me too. Now, I had always thought that my life was an abomination. I, I just didn't think salvation was for me. But as I studied, I began to realize that salvation was for me too. If there's any one person that is unreachable and unchangeable, then that shows God to be impotent rather than omnipotent. And we, we know he's omnipotent, don't we? So here's how I came to that conclusion. Um, first of all, there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And I know Mike would testify to this too when, when we were going out into the gay life. We, at first, we didn't know anyone else like us. We felt we were all alone and frustrated and, and whatever. But this is such a comforting text where God says, hey, there are other people that deal with these temptations. It, it, it's not unique. There's no temptation that has taken you but such as is common to man. 
but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. Now apply that to the gay issue. People that have these tendencies and the drives and compulsions and God is saying, you can deal with that through my grace. My grace is sufficient for that. That would not be on you if you could not handle it. God would not allow you to go through that if it could not be handled through his grace. Um, of course, people say, well, why that? Why couldn't it be something else? Well, there are people that are not gay that are, that are in other issues that say the same thing. I wish it were something else, you know, rather than drugs. Why, why am I addicted to drugs? Why couldn't it be something else that I could handle? But God knows. Uh, will, he will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. These are powerful texts for someone like me. And then in Leviticus, when you read in 18 and chapter 20, this particular quote is from Leviticus chapter 20, where it says, If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Well, I think we're all familiar with that text. Uh, I know the people from SDA kinship, they try to explain all of this stuff away. You, no matter what scripture you show them, they have an answer. Well, that's not homosexuality. That's the perversion of homosexuality that it's talking about. How do you pervert homosexuality? Isn't it already a perversion? <laughs> there is, there's, an, uh, there's a homosexuality that God is okay with, but, but if it's, in other words, if it's not monogamous, maybe that's referring to uh, the non-monogamous gay relationships. That text is very, very plain. If a man lie with mankind as he lies with a woman, both of them, that's two people. It doesn't say what circumstances. It doesn't matter. If you do that, it's abomination. So I felt that was me, abomination. However, as I put together all of the abominations of the Bible into one basket, which is what I did, I, it gave me hope because I listed them all together. Here are other abominations mentioned in the Bible. Idolatry, an impure sacrifice, occultic practices, wearing that which pertaineth to the opposite gender. Certain re Doesn't that cover the transgender and the tr all of that stuff, you know? Certain remarriages to former spouses. You'll you have to look that up and figure that one out. The Lord revealed that one to me in a very interesting way. But anyway, certain remarriages to former spouses. Dishonesty. Well, who would think dishonesty was an abomination? I mean, that's such a little thing, right? Perverse behavior. A proud look. A lying tongue. Murder. Wicked imaginations. Mischief. That bothered me because I was always a mischievous child. There must be a mischief that's okay. And then there's a mischief that's not okay. Now I sound like the gay saying, well, there's got to be a gay that's okay and a gay that's not, right? Uh, but that, that, I think that means malicious mischief. <laughs> uh, anyway, false witness that speaks lies and, oh boy, he that sows discord among the brethren. Wow. Do we have abominations in the church or what? When you go through this list, our church has abominations in it. And it's not just the gay issue. Justifying evil and condemning the just. Now chew on that one a little while. Justifying homosexuality, embracing it through this love and acceptance message 
That's an abomination with God. Don't justify something I call abomination, or then you become abomination, <laughs> you know, and condemning the just. And so then there are, you know, those who are trying to set the record straight, and they're condemned for preaching the truth. So when you flip this, when you call evil good and you call good evil, God says, wait a minute, that's abomination to me. Don't do that. This is why we need to reason with God. Adultery. Now, I, like, I liked it when I came across that because in some cultures, it's considered to be a great conquest for men to have as many women. You know, this is machismo or whatever they call it, macho, to have multiple conquests with women. And those same men will look down on a gay person as abomination. Well, guess what? That's just as abominable. So adultery, period. So sexual intimacy outside of marriage of any form is really abomination. We all need a savior, don't we? Amen. From sin, from abomination of one kind or another. Um, and so number five is that the cause of homosexuality I discovered was irrelevant. There are so many conversations that we have with people who are trying to, we get these long stories of parents trying to figure out why their son is gay. And we did everything right. We thought we did everything right. And I say, listen, you're in good company. What do you mean? I said, well, God the Father had the same problem you do. What did he do wrong? Lucifer, the most highly beautiful created being in heaven and living in perfect loving environment and all that glory and everything he could ever want, you know, he turned against his father and went that way. It's called the mystery of iniquity. So I say, don't blame yourself. I mean, there may be some blame to go around, but don't get caught up in that because there are people that rise like the phoenix from the ashes. I mean, from the most degraded circumstances, rise to become great, noble people. And there are people that live in the perfect Christian home. There, I use that word perfect again, but you know what I mean. The perfect Christian home that grow up to be nothing and just degraded and abominable and everything else. So really, the cause of homosexuality is irrelevant. And I, I began to realize that. Um, did Jesus come to save the homosexual in his homosexuality or from his homosexuality? It would be from, of course. And so I want to share with you a little allegory here. I have a real true life story that I could tell, but I, I'm not going to take the time. But here's a little allegory. If a person is drowning in the sea, does it matter why? He's drowning. What really matters? That's what matters. <laughs> Is there a lifeguard, right? So just imagine, you're drowning in the sea. Here comes the lifeguard in a boat, and he's reaching out to you. But he says, wait a minute. How'd you get yourself into this predicament anyway? Did you fall off your boat? Did you jump in? Did someone push you out here? Did you get caught in a riptide? Is it my fault you were drowning? You know, people say it's God's fault. Is it my fault you're drowning? Did you choose to swim out here? What difference does it make? Right? It doesn't matter. The question is, are you drowning in the sea of sin? I liken this to the sea of 
sin. If someone is drowning in the sea of sin, this is all that matters. And this picture was recent. I, saw, I think I saw it at the last ASI. It's a relatively new painting or something. General Conference. I thought, wow, if you look closely, Jesus is standing on the surface of the water. He's reaching down. His hand is piercing through the water. What a beautiful illustration of what Jesus does. And he's not asking any questions. <laughs> right? The Bible doesn't give all, uh, it doesn't spend time talking about reasons for sin and bondage and all of that. The Bible is all about solutions. There are three sins, however, especially offensive to God. Have you ever read about that? Three sins especially offensive to God. I found Bible texts that go along with that because this was prepared for a non-Adventist uh, audience, but uh, in the spirit of prophecy, it names them very clearly. Number one, homosexuality, by the way, is not included. <laughs> homosexuality is not especially offensive to God, even though it's abomination. Pride is. Of course, you all heard about gay pride. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Anyway, pride, number one. Number two, selfishness. And number three, covetousness. And I've wondered, why are these three sins especially offensive to God? And this is what I came up with. These are the three sins that made a devil out of Lucifer. He wasn't committing adultery. He hadn't murdered anyone yet or whatever. But these are also roots. And you'll never kill a tree by picking the fruit, right? You have to cut the roots. And so these are roots. And while these three sins were in the heart of Lucifer, they were undetected. He deceived a third of the angels of heaven through pride, selfishness, and covetousness. And they didn't even know what was happening until much, much later. Uh, very, very serious sins. But, oh, but those three sins, of course, um, you think about any sin issue, and are those roots not involved? Pride, selfishness, and covetousness. Number six in my journey was learning to forgive. Um, you know, when I stopped blaming everybody, and those of you who heard my story yesterday you got a beautiful picture of my father, right? Wasn't that a beautiful, touching picture? I grew up hating my father, literally hating him. And in my book, the first half of the book, he's the villain. I mean, we had a horrible relationship. Uh, he was so abusive towards me, but somewhere along the way he was converted, and somewhere along the way I was converted. But I think probably the most beautiful chapter in that book is my reconciliation with my father. And I'll tell you what, when you learn to forgive, it is so healing. And Jesus tells us, forgive us our debts. In our prayers, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Um, when you think about it, do you want God to forgive you the way you are forgiving someone else or not forgiving? If you have an unforgiving heart, God cannot forgive you if you are not forgiving someone else. 
And this to me is what I call the face of resentment, a good illustration. When you're harboring bitterness and resentment and, and anger um, and an unforgiving spirit, it can just ruin your whole day and your whole life. Amen. And I found a better picture of this. Harbored resentment leads to what I call emotional retardation. And I shared that on a panel, and next to me was sitting one of those PhDs that always put me in my place. And he looked at me and he said, <clears throat> we call that emotional arrest. I thought, oh, you already understand that then. You know, it's, um, I came up with what I thought was a good explanation, but actually his is better. Retardation is slow growth. Arrest means it stops growing. I came up with this because in my family, two siblings, I learned to forgive my father, and then I have another sibling who never did. And that is a very good picture. The point is that if you are holding on to resentments, whatever the incident was, if you don't forgive and get over that, that's where you stop growing emotionally. And you can be 50 years old and still act like a 10-year-old brat, you know? And you have, everyone has to tiptoe around you, and you meet every challenge, every issue in your life like a 10-year-old that never did get over something. And so if you don't forgive, you're going to get hung up in resentment, and you're going to end up in emotional arrest. And you can't fully grow to your potential when you're hanging on to these things. This passage, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And I, I found that picture. I really like that picture because I think of my dad when, when we reconciled. And we were best friends. The last 20 years of his life, we were best friends. I was with him the day he passed away. And he couldn't even talk because he had congestive heart failure and he was going down. But he just reached out and I took his hand and we just squeezed hands. And we communicated through touch. And it was just precious. And when he passed, I was at perfect peace. Perfect peace because I, um, everything was resolved between us and we had a very wonderful, loving relationship. And I look forward to the resurrection. Number seven, this whole thing, uh, uh, our behavior really is a matter of choice, whether we like to admit that or not. I argued against that point uh, for years, people try to tell me it's a matter of choice. And I say, no, it's not a matter of choice. Um, it's just who I am. I just finally have accepted who I am. Well, if you accept something, isn't, aren't you choosing? <laughs> I was admitting they were right while I was arguing against them. I just accept it. Well, yeah, you chose it. All right. Here's the thing. If, if you feel like you are drowning in the sea of sin, and the lifeguard comes along and offers you a way out, don't you have to choose to take it? Uh, if we, we hear this talk about orientation and so forth, uh, homosexuality, is it a sexual orientation or a sexual preference? And I wrote an article about that because it may be an orientation, but if someone comes along and shows you there's a way out of it and you choose not, well, you don't take it, now it's a preference, right? If you reject the Savior's call, it's a choice. 
So it doesn't matter how you got there. If you reject the remedy, then it's now a preference. Does that make sense? Um, that's the way I began to look at myself. Choose ye this day whom ye will serve, uh, we read in Joshua. Um, let this mind be in you. That means you allow it. You choose to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, when it lists all these behaviors that will not be in heaven, and then verse 11 says, such were some of you, but ye are washed, sanctified, and justified. And in that list is homosexuality. And Paul is talking to Christians who had turned their backs on their homosexual lives and accepted Jesus. Such were some of you. When I was shown that text of scripture, I was shaken to my core. And this pastor that showed me that, um, I didn't know what to say, so I just laughed and said, oh, you made that up. That's not what it says. And that was the wrong thing to say to that pastor. <laughs> he read it again. <laughs> and then he turned the Bible around and said, now you read it. <laughs> uh, but that night I ended up taking a stand to a certain degree. Uh, when I went home and was confronted by my partner, he said, what's all this Jesus stuff you're reading about? Are you going to be going along with this Jesus stuff? And I started to deny because I didn't, want the confrontation. And I thought, no, I've, I'm just going to blurt out, yes, I said, I think I am. And he said, I think, I feel like breaking stuff. And he ran through the house and just started breaking everything he could get his hands on. I heard the crashing throughout the house and I sat there and I, had, I felt so much peace. I had taken a stand. And I, hadn't, I wasn't prepared to, but, but I did. It was another step. Number, uh, yeah. If, here again, this is choice, if any, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. We get accused all the time, oh, you're just denying who you are. Amen. <laughs> That's right. I'm denying self. Don't we all have to do that? We present our bodies a living sacrifice. Deny ourselves. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Number eight, I learned how important it was to walk with God. We have to spend time with him, walk with him, and here again, we can converse with God as we would talk with a friend. He understands our language. <laughs> I think he created it. Um, there are several ways we walk with God through prayer, through daily study, and I notice, and, and through nature. When you're out, you know, as we're walking around the lake, you know, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, and we look out over this beautiful setting. I mean, how can you? And you go down that rose walk. Amen. And you look at those roses. And you go, how in the world could that be? It's, it, I mean, you learn so much about God and feel so closer to him when you are walking with him. Number nine, protect your environment. I learned how to protect my environment. Um, what is that? That's me. <laughs> uh, in other words, guard well the avenues to the soul. When I came out of the gay life, I started practicing certain things. And I still have to practice. You know, you, even though you learn something, you keep practicing. I do concerts all the time. But before I, before I do a concert, I get there a couple hours early, and I play every song I'm going to play. I have to practice it again. Otherwise, I have a brain freeze or a senior second or a senior moment, whatever. 
But there are several things that I practice. Flip the switch, turn the page, change the channel, turn your head, change the discussion, change the topic, you know. And I just started really protecting my environment. And I surrounded myself with a different society. And it, it was amazing how fast I felt myself growing and how fast the other was starving out. Um, these are all biblical methods. Whatsoever things are true, honest, whatsoever things are pure, lovely, of good report, you know the, the passage. You know, think on these things. Protect your environment. Um, and I love this passage here. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Sometimes we get that backwards, don't we? And then he will flee from you. Anyone who's ever worked out with, in a gym with weights and everything, they call it resistance training. You get strong by resisting gravity. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you, but you need to exercise. Grace, by the way, is the divine influence working on the heart and then reflecting in the life. Grace is transforming power. And he says, my grace, my strength is sufficient for whatever you're dealing with. So you submit yourself to that grace, submit yourself therefore to God, and then resist the devil. Put it to work, and every time you say no, it gets weaker and you get stronger. And then he will flee from you. It's, it's a, a program that anyone understands that's ever worked out in a gym. And then you keep adding more and more weights and so forth. And of course, we don't want more and more temptation, but the point is... The point is, if we follow God's plan, submit first and then resist. If we try to resist on our own, we are human. Satan is supernatural. We, there's no way we can beat that. But God is divine. And if we submit to God, we plug into him, then we become. The, the passage is that, um, that we become omnipotent. When the will of man... Uh, no, I just drew a blank. When the will of man is in harmony with the will of God anyway, it becomes omnipotent. Uh, I, I had that senior moment there. I forgot. I usually can quote that very <laughs> clearly. But yeah, when you plug into divinity, then you become omnipotent because you're plugged into omnipotence against the devil, the supernatural. Don't try it in your humanity. Number 10, personalize scripture. When, you know, insert your own sin in the scripture, your own name in the scripture, personalize it. I found that to be very helpful. You know, therefore, if any man, Ron Woolsey, be in Christ, he is a new creature. Um, now, anyone see anything wrong with that picture, by the way? It's a beautiful picture, and we see it all the time. What's wrong with that picture? <laughs> The, the word of God says, take away the filthy garment. This picture just covers the filthy garment. And so that's, that's not quite accurate. But the point that I'm trying to make is I couldn't find one. I, well, you don't want him standing there without his the garments. Father, yeah. That's always bothered me. He just covers them up covers yeah. the, with the robe. Well, I'm sure when he got to the house, <laughs> in a private place, <laughs> they did the right thing. So, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Oh, wow. <laughs> in Arkansas, that means we have a funeral. 
Behold, all things are become new. Um, so personalizing scripture, and you can do that with so many promises. I have an article uh, and even on my website and also in my, my new book. There's a chapter called The Rainbow of Promises, and it's just filled with promises. And you, put, you can personalize those, and they're very powerful. Um, number 11, act upon God's word. There is power in the word. Uh, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That's creative power. Here's recreative power. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was recreated, wasn't he? And the resurrection is a recreation. Amen. There's creative power, recreative power. When Jesus said to Mary, neither do I condemn thee, that's compassion. That's the love and acceptance part of the message. Um, go and sin no more. That's not compromising on biblical principles. And there was power. She acted upon that word and she had victory in her life. There again, that text, no temptation is taking you but such is common. But I'm going to move on because we wanted to get to a, a little question answer here. Number 12, be grateful. What do I mean by that? We need to be grateful for what God has given. He created the institution of marriage, and within that institution is the gift of sexual intimacy. That gift goes only with that institution. Now, we don't have to be involved in the institution, but we do need to be grateful for what God created and um, accept with gratitude what he has offered. In fact... When you think about it carefully, if a man is lusting after another man, is he not coveting something that God created for someone else? And if a woman is lusting after a woman, is he not coveting what God created for someone else? If a man is lusting after a woman, that's also adultery. Um, but we need to be grateful for what God has uh, given us. In this picture, we see this little lamb by the fence. And the question is, is this fence for restriction or for protection? Well, even if it's a big old burly ram, the fence. See, we look at God's law. I left the church over God's law, the thou shalt not. So I'm looking at the law of God as restrictive. But Jesus said, if you love me, this you know, if you love me, do this. If you love me, do that. And the law of God is really a protection because as long as we are content within the parameters God has established for us, just like the lamb in the field, well-fed, well-watered, well-cared for, um, and, and so forth, what's on the outside, the fence is there for a reason, and it's really there for protection. On the outside could be a cliff, brambles, wolves, you know, whatever. And we need to start being grateful for the restrictions the Lord has given us. God is love. He's a loving Heavenly Father. Everything he asks of us is for our own good. His, his commandments, his warnings, his punishments. How many of you have ever punished your children? <laughs> you know, in love. Hopefully it was in love. It's a loving parent that will do everything. If the Bible says God is love, then everything in that Bible is revealing the love of God Amen. in one way or another. And so we need to be thankful for the restrictions because those restrictions are probably really protections. Number 13, 
I had to realize that temptation is not sin. When I left the Lord, I felt guilty because of the constant temptation I was dealing with. This is really a major, major point. There are those out there that are constantly trying to, to label people by the nature of their temptations. They call it orientation. The Bible doesn't talk about innate orientation. The, it does talk about temptation. But there again, temptation reveals Satan's plan for your life. It doesn't reveal necessarily who I am. It certainly reveals who Satan is to me. And then to realize if, if temptation reveals our orientation, then what do you say about Jesus, who is tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin? So don't let... Don't label someone as uh, with an orientation because of the nature of their temptation, because that kind of s suggests they're unchangeable, and and none of us are unchangeable. The new birth consists of having new motives, new tastes, new tendencies. A genuine conversion changes hereditary and cultivated tendencies. Um, we hear that from a commentary on Second Corinthians five seventeen. Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. He suffered being tempted, which means he struggled, and he resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So these are levels uh, that we may go through in our struggles. But if we get to the point where we would rather die than sin, don't you think we're safe to take to heaven? <laughs> and there are millions and millions of people that have done that, and that are doing it even now over in the eastern countries christians are given a chance if you will denounce jesus we'll save your life and even little children scads of children are being beheaded in front of their parents because the children will not denounce jesus and they have none of the light that we have i mean they have some but they're willing to die for their jesus even though they don't have the light that we have so yes um, these, when we get to that point, we have, really, we have really become like Jesus, haven't we? Temptation is not sin. Orientation is not determined by one's temptations. I used to be a pilot, and I'll tell you, I, on my first solo cross-country flight, I got caught in a violent storm, and I have flown in tailwinds, headwinds, crosswinds, and a violent storm, but you know, I I never let the storms determine my orientation. So when you hear about this orientation, the, the gay community is constantly trying to redefine words. Orientation is about choice. You look it up in the dictionary, but they talk about this innate orientation like it's something that's cemented, that cannot be changed. Any pilot knows that you do whatever it takes to make sure you stay oriented. And you may be flying almost sideways, but still can get to your destination. So um, we need to realize that orientation, and there's also another good word, reorientation. And we know that's a good word. Okay, the last point here that I want to make, and then we'll have a little question answer period. The secret to overcoming, the secret to overcoming, do you see what it is? And I got this out of the spirit of prophecy, not the picture. But the secret to overcoming sin is, is helping someone else to overcome sin. And why would that be? I've pondered that, and I thought, you know, that's really, really quite profound. The secret to overcoming sin 
is getting involved in helping others because you're not focusing inward, you're focusing outward. Your attention is off yourself. Um, it, it follows that simple principle of joy, the heavenly principle of joy. You put Jesus first. Remember Joseph when he was severely tempted. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He had his priorities straight. God first. And you know he had to be terribly tempted by this beautiful woman who was his master. He could have said, God, uh, she told me to. <laughs> but he didn't. How can I do this great weakness, sin against God? God first, others second. When you're focusing outward, you take all of that focus off your own problems. And as you are trying to help others find victory, we learn by teaching. Anyone who has ever taught and realizes that the more you teach, the more you learn. And the more you help others to overcome sin, the stronger you become. For one thing, uh, when you're rehearsing your own testimony, Revelation 12:11, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, it's positive reinforcement. As you're sharing with others what the Lord has done, it's constantly reminding you of the power of God. Positive reinforcement rather than negative. Jesus told the demoniacs of Gadara, go home to your friends, tell them the great things the Lord has done for you, how he's had compassion on you, and they became the first missionaries. And that was the day they were converted. <laughs> um, interesting. So there we the, have that. Um, to, to close this presentation, I like this benediction um, that is, is the text not there? Uh, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you, there's that word. <laughs> but notice it says, now the God of peace make you perfect. I think God's a perfectionist. He's a, creation, he, he's a creator and he's a perfectionist. But may the God of peace make you perfect in every good work to do as we are working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As our recreator, he will recreate his image in his people. So um, there we have the secret to overcoming. I wanted to take a few minutes, Mike, if you would come up so that we can have a few questions. Normally what we do, we have the questions written out because it takes much less time. So we would just encourage you, uh, you know, if we call upon you, when we call upon you with your question, please make it as brief as possible uh, so that we can have time to take more than one or two questions. Yes. When you made the commitment to stop with this bad lifestyle, did you struggle with it? Did you slip back and then go forward? Was was, or did you oh, just stop? Period. Oh, that is such a good question, and I, I know Mike's got an answer to that too. But uh, when I accepted Jesus, that didn't free me from temptation. The devil doubled down, but I was almost killed in the process of of leaving my gay life. And. But yes, there was fierce temptation, but I knew how to deal with it. And so I learned to starve, to starve that and feed the new. 
and so they would get weaker and weaker and the new would get stronger and stronger. I know there was a, a there was a a prominent person from the seminary that wanted to publish my testimony and he asked me this question when when you were converted did the Lord take it away and I said well no he didn't and he kept pressing me on that because he felt that I should be able to say the Lord just took it away no he didn't um, and so I had to wrestle with him over that but it's like an elder in my church he talks about how the Lord just took away his desire to smoke he prayed about it and um, one day he was driving down the road and he just threw his cigarettes out the window and then he threw his lighter out the window and the Lord just took it away and he's never had a desire to smoke since. I said, Jim, that ain't fair. <laughs> First of all, he took away your desire to smoke but you became a litter bug. But, second, <laughs> but secondly, the Lord didn't do that for me because remember in my testimony, I struggled and struggled with the cigarettes. It took a long time for me to to get over that. But then he said, well, that's okay. My wife still dreams about smoking. So I said, okay. Does she smoke? No. I said, so which one of you has victory? He said, well, we both do. I said, amen. It's very, once in a great while, we come across someone that says the Lord took it away. I think we both know the same lady that says the Lord took this thing away from her. And I don't understand that, but I praise the Lord for it. Because he didn't take it away from us, did he, Mike? We had to struggle. It's something that you, you have to starve. But that doesn't mean you, you can be victorious the day you accept Jesus. You are covered with his righteousness as soon as you enter into the uh, process of becoming righteous. He covers you with his righteousness, and then he starts working in you. Did you want to comment on that, Mike? I, th I think that was kind of it. One of the things that um, I also mentioned is that you know, when I came out of the baptismal pool, you know, God didn't take away my history and memory. And if you've been baptized, you realize about 10 minutes later that God didn't do the same thing for you. It's a process of healing. And I think that we need to understand that, that again, to understand the difference between temptation and sin. You know, I, when I quoted that passage, the new birth consists of new motives, new tastes, new tendencies, that may have prompted your question. But you, you used a key word there, Mike, and that is that it's a process. It's not instant. It is a growth process. It's a sanctification process. It's a learning and a practicing process of developing new habits. Yes. God, ha God has a way um, of dealing with each individual. You may come out of it that way quickly and others are drawn out, there is a reason. When we teach our children, not all of them obey at the same time. You have to use different tactics for each child. Mm -hmm. And each person can come out and say, yes, I am gay. And others don't. That doesn't mean they're denying themselves. That means God's working in you to do it, and others, he's not using uh, uh, gay to approve. Well, you know, God doesn't promise to take away temptation. Right, I've not found but there's that. different ways of doing it. He God promises that his grace is sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Questions only, please. 
And, and please be quick, okay? Too quick. Okay, the, the first question was the statistics did they, that we shared mostly were about gays and do they say apply to lesbians? Uh, they're very similar, but some of the, the uh, percentages are higher for lesbians and some are lower for lesbians. They're not identical, but they're certainly um, uh, greater than normal, or I say normal, but the general population, heterosexual population. The, the statistics, they kind of parallel, but they're not the same. When it comes to the promiscuity, that's much greater in the men than the women. Women tend to be more into relationship and the men more into the self-gratification. So, you know, there are some of those differences, but either way, uh, they're, they're still wrong. The other, the other thing, when the pastor said that kind can never change, that was after I was already converted. I was, oh, you're talking about when I went through counseling with my wife. Yeah. No, when he when they said that, it confirmed in me what I already felt. Uh, and I have since learned there were other pastors that were saying, you know, offering a different message. But what stuck, I mean, you could have 10 good words of counsel, and then you have one pastor say that kind can never change. And boy, that's that's what stuck. And it confirmed with me that, that I was beyond help. But yeah, there were... I really don't know at that point. I don't know. We uh, Sometimes the, the Lord lets you go so low that all you can do is look up. And at that point, I really think I was unreachable because I went to those counselors and I, I well, I was just out of control, just totally out of control. It's almost like the Lord had to give me rain uh, or, or give me rope, you know, that type of thing. I really don't know what would have helped me at that point. Yes. Uh, Mike. Melissa uh, read from out of the Bible. What was the scripture that she read? Psalms 139. I, I can still hear it. Yeah. Psalms 139. Was the, was the Psalms where Marissa read talking about how God knit her very delicate parts, her inward parts together? Uh, even before he knew her, and that his thoughts towards her were as countless as the sands on the seashore. That, to me, is an affirmation right there that the transgender ish issue was resolved by God and that God's not a jokester. He doesn't put female minds in male bodies and that he's intentional about our, our delicate inward parts. Someone over here, we keep looking this direction. Do we have any questions? Uh, how can the church be uh, more loving, accepting? Uh, so how, what can our local congregations do to reach out? Okay, I'm going to be talking more about that tomorrow and the next day. I uh, will be, be covering that. But 
but we, do, we need to be very compassionate, very understanding, but don't compromise. When I visited an Adventist church after studying my way to that point, um, I was very shocked and disappointed because the message would send me right back to where I came from. I, I was hearing we'll be sinning until Jesus comes. They took me to a restaurant for, church, for lunch after church and then talked to me about my cigarettes. I was, I was totally upset and offended by all of that. Why could they sin until Jesus comes and I need to give up my cigarettes? The final test for God's people does not, is not about cigarettes. <laughs> it's about Sabbath. But, you know, we need to be consistent, compassionate, loving, and understanding, and consistent. But don't compromise. Don't baptize people that are not ready because with baptism comes, uh, with membership comes a voice, uh, a, voice a vote, and an opportunity. Uh, we, uh, membership is sacred. Our churches should be open for anyone to worship, but membership is very sacred. And the, the Apostle John, I mean, uh, John the Baptist says, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. So, Two things, we need to be loving and compassionate and whatever, but do not compromise. I wanted something strong to hang on to. I wanted consistency. And when I saw it, I grabbed it, even though it really stomped all over my toes. <laughs> okay. Oh, yes. Um, my daughter has a, a really best friend that's a male professional that is gay and Adventist. And he just doesn't, he can't pinpoint anything except that he just always felt that way. He can't place any family dynamics that brought him to that point. How, how could she relate to him and help him? A person that grew up, uh, there was no abuse. They can't figure out any reason why he'd be gay. He's just always felt that way is what she's saying. How do you relate to that? Uh, again, I, I just refer to what Ron was talking about. Does it matter how somebody com becomes gay? You know, and, and one of the things that it did matter to me, you know, I, I agree with what Ron says. Ultimately, we have to look at the solution. You know, many times in therapy, we'll say, you know, we spend too much time on the problem and not enough time on the solution. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I asked God at 40 years old coming back is I wanted to know how it happened. I wanted to know how I got derailed. I was never molested. I was never in a situation where I saw sexual things, but the Lord did show me that through the rejection of my father's masculinity, that got me derailed. And so um, even if he's not aware of how this happened, the beautiful thing is that God says whether you were born that way or whether you you know, were exposed to that through uh, cultivated tendencies, he says you must be born again. And, and I, I think that we have to be careful not to be cavalier about that statement, but God says that we were all shaped in iniquity and born into sin. We all have an issue. And I think what the gay community does, and I think that the Christian community is responsible for a lot of the gay movement. I hope you heard me. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about all the abominations. And in Christian culture for many decades, what we did is we took homosexuality out and we put it up here and we said, that's the sin that God can't stand. But I believe that what's happened is the gay community looked at that and said, oh, really? Well, if I can't change, then I want special rights and I want to be acknowledged for the, for the fact that I can't change. And I think that Christian culture has done a lot to help support that. But here's the remedy. If we take homosexuality back and throw it right back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we claim verse 11 that says, such were some of you, 
then guess what? It doesn't make you better than me, but it doesn't make me better than you, and we're all level at the same level, right? And so it takes away kind of the condescension in Christianity where we go, oh, you poor little homosexual, God bless you. And instead, I think that it's much more compassionate when we say, hey, listen, sister, I don't understand what your issue is, but I got issues too. And can we all walk together and follow Jesus Christ for the answer? Doesn't that sound much more supportive? And one part of her question was, how do we relate? There again, uh, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You relate to them by leading them to Christ. And when a person truly falls in love with the Lord, the Holy Spirit will lay out convictions in the order that they need to be dealt with. Uh, So, no, you relate to them in a loving and kind way. Talking about compassion, and I know Monday you were you mentioned that much, right? Um, and you've revealed a lot of things that I didn't know about, and I appreciate that. But at what point in the church, and the church I go to, hasn't uh, we haven't seen any homosexuals come in? But at what point if a homosexual does come into a church acting like a couple, then? I think I have a problem with it simply because we have kids. We have kids Mm -hmm. of all ages. Now they're looking at this. And, um, you know, as as a pastor, I don't know if you you have have dealt with that or not, Mm -hmm. but um, I think think we need to protect our kids if someone's coming in and uh, not even trying to promote that lifestyle. Well, the question is, what do you do if, if a gay couple comes to your church? What about the children? What, uh, you know, how do you help them see it's not uh, condoned by the church? First of all, you don't accept them in the membership. You look at them as a mission field. And they do need to be um, approached with the gospel and, and, and so forth and led gently along the way. But at, if, you, if you discover that they are defiant that they are pushing an agenda, that they you know, are not approachable about this issue, then the church needs to take steps because uh, it's not a place for rebellion and defiance. And the Bible says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And so uh, initially when, when people of, this, uh, of, of all walks of life come into the church, we welcome them for worship, but we get to know them and we can't just let them come every week and not visit them and not work with them and not talk with them. But if they manifest a spirit of defiance and they're not going to change and all that, then, then we have to take steps for that very reason to protect our flock from any error from any source. You know. Okay, I'll get to that. The analogy of the hospital, yeah, the church is like a hospital and you will have every level of wellness and sickness in a hospital. You have those who are, are, are health professionals, and then you have those who are, you have uh, those who are chronically ill, terminally ill. You have some who are hypochondriac. You know, you have every level of spiritual sickness coming into a church. But if a person, uh, but you don't take people who are in recovery, that are still dealing with issues, and make them the healers you know, and put them in positions, the, those people need to be well. But the, but the church is like a hospital, and there needs to be um, 
attention given to those of every level of spiritual illness. And now your question was, what if they're already members? That is such a good question. Because the reason SDA kinship has the influence they have in the church is because of the very thing you're talking about. They were never dealt with according to biblical principles. Matthew 18, you go one-on-one and you work with that person. And if that person is resistant, then take one or two more. And if they're resistant and that defiance and stuff shows, shows up, then you take it before the church and they're to be disciplined. But that is also a redemptive process. And if it is done correctly, people that are disciplined quite often can be redeemed. I mean, I've had it happen in my churches a number of times where people of gross open sin have had their names dropped. They, they knew that they should, but later they were reconverted and they're very strong people in the church, uh, you know, in another church. But the very fact that our churches do not deal with open sin has, has uh, nurtured this within our church to where it's like a cancer growing and now what do you do about it? But, and I've even talked to the, like on the general conference level about this, why is this in the general conference people have said, we're not enforcers. It's up to the local churches to carry out the policies of the, of the denomination and so forth. And, and you can't force them to do so. So we have churches that are known as gay churches because they have so many gay people and they have church office and, and all of this kind of thing. Um, in Hollywood now we have a transgender elder and Sabbath school teacher. Uh, and it's really shocking to see these things, but the local church is not dealing with it. And, sorry. <laughs> Thought I had that turned down. Uh, and then the next level up would be the conference. So you have conferences who are very friendly to this issue as well. So, and that's, that's the problem that we're facing. Yeah. Yesterday, yesterday you made a clear point that homosexuality is not a genetic issue. You haven't found a homosexual gene. Right. But it's clear as you see some homosexual or gay men that they're clearly more effeminate than, than others at times. How do you, how do you Oh, I love that question. <laughs> you want to talk to, also, go ahead, and so, I have some thoughts too. <laughs> on Monday, I talked about you know my own experience because um, between the ages of one and three, you know, a little boy doesn't know that he's boy other than the fact that he starts to realize that he has different parts than mom and more like dad. In a healthy relationship, this little boy has to make a transition to the father, and then that's how masculinity helps to get hardened in the, the cement. So for me specifically, my dad wasn't available because he was in the Navy. But then when he was home, he was abusive, he was loud and angry, and so as I was transitioning to my father, he either wasn't available to me, which I viewed as abandonment, or he was angry and abusive, which I found unattractive. And so I did what was called gender or defensive detachment. In my defense, I detached from my father as my male role model, and the only example left for me was my mother. So I started to pattern after my mother, my mannerisms, the way I talked, the way I walked, uh, I started wearing dresses, you know, my mother's clothing, started playing with dolls, so I identified in the feminine. So that's a behavioral issue, not a genetic issue. 
Right. Now, there is something called the hormone wash that actually happens during a pregnancy. And if a mother, you know, if a, if a pregnant woman uh, has, um, you know, a, an extreme situation or whatever during the pregnancy, during this hormonal wash, it can actually interrupt it or retard it. And so a, a, a female can actually be born with more masculine tendencies because the hormone wash wasn't complete and vice versa for males. So there's many reasons why somebody may have effeminate tendencies, you know, but again, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're homosexual either. I, uh, I went to school with a fellow in high school that was extremely effeminate, and uh, a lot of times the effeminate mannerisms are actually more effeminate than women are effeminate, yeah. because I've actually seen women that have those same mannerisms that look peculiar, and I notice it's just, uh, I, I don't know what it is, but it's strange if a woman manifest those same mannerisms or a man but I went to school with this guy in high school and it was a Christian school he was in the dormitory extremely effeminate uh, but the boys never made fun of him teased him mocked him or anything he was likable and we all treated him with respect uh, and he went on to graduate he married he's been married all these years uh, since then uh, he wasn't gay there's nothing gay about him uh, the we very often confuse mannerisms with homosexuality. And a lot of times, children that have these mannerisms are pushed to homosexuality. They're teased, they're, called, they're brainwashed, they're called names, and, they're, and, and they start wondering and thinking. And then the gay community says, well, yeah, sure, we, we have no problem. And so they tend to, to, it's like water runs downhill, you know, it seeks the lowest. Uh, and, and they go where they're accepted. Uh, now, it's true in the gay community, you'll see a lot of effeminate, but the vast majority of gay people you would never pick out of a crowd. They are not, the gay men are not effeminate. They could be your policeman, your fireman, your mailman, whatever, you would never know uh, in a crowd. However, in those settings, they find the effeminate ones to be very entertaining. Right? When you go to the gay bars, the ones that are flamboyant, we call them flaming queens, they were very entertaining. And I have actually seen them put it on. I mean, they turn it on because they like the attention. And I've seen them afterwards, and they're not, they're not nearly as effeminate, you know, away from the bar as they are in the gay scene. So there's this feeding of it and encouraging it that goes on. But the vast majority are not effeminate, I would think. the difference between a transgender and gay? So I, I think that's a great question because most of the time people think or assume that because you're transgender that you must be gay. There's a, um, a woman that called me uh, a couple years ago and she had gotten her son a sex change in Thailand. He'd been uh, commit or attempting suicide and he was a drug addict and so he had a five-year-old son. So once he now had the sex change, now he's a female, and, and basically, you know, he just mutilated his genitals to appear feminine, and he had breast implants done. So now that he's on these hormones, you know, he hasn't changed his sex, he's, his <coughs> DNA is still male. He still has a five-year-old son that calls him daddy, but now he's living as a woman. So this mother called me, and she was concerned because now her son was still attracted to females, but now a daughter, and she thought that now she's a lesbian, and she was <laughs> concerned about her salvation because she was still attracted to females. Very confusing, isn't it? But the point being is that just because just because somebody is transgender does not make them gay. 
there's two different things, even though there are transgender people who are homosexual. I was transgender with same-sex attraction, whereas there's other people like Walt Heyer from TradingMySorrows.com who was heterosexual but um, also transgender. Well, and Bruce Jenner. Uh, Bruce yeah. Jenner is still attracted to women. Yeah. And I've read articles now where he's considering changing back because I don't know that that's confirmed. Yeah, <laughs> I have read these articles, and so there's this idea, yeah. They're not the same thing. Are you reading the Inquirer? <laughs> I write for the Inquirer. Oh, no, I'm just kidding, and this is recorded, right? Please scratch that, scratch that. That is not true. Yeah. <laughs> in, in one of, is that loud enough? In one of my experiences, um, I mean, I can speak without it. Yeah, well, we need it recorded. Oh. So people can oh. <laughs> Well, in one of my experiences, we had um, a, a lesbian couple that worshiped with us. They were not members, but they also had a little daughter. Um, and I won't go through the whole story, but the, the point that um, my question is on is the little daughter was down in Sabbath school, and I guess there was a program about parents or whatever, and she said, I had two mommies. How do you deal with the influence? How do you deal with that kind of influence? I mean, do you? Is it an issue of parents just talking to their children or... or you know, the church as a whole, how do you deal with that kind of influence? They, they weren't members. Um, eventually, um, actually, they asked to um, become officers and teach the lower division, which that, um, you know, was, you know, dealt with kindly at that point. But there's still that issue of influence at that level. When you said they were non-members, yeah. And, and two mommies is, this is becoming more and more common that there are children with two mommies and you have to meet them where they are. It's true, she has two mommies. But you, you need to reach them with the gospel. Are you talking about how do you relate to the child? Yeah, the, the, the influence on the children and some of them, I mean, it's like, what, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So they, they were actually, quote, Adventist from, you know, somewhere in California, but they were not members of local church. Mm. Yeah. Ron, how would you deal with someone whose parents are alcoholics, or someone whose parent is in the prison, or mm. someone whose parent is a murderer? Or how is homosexuality different than any of the rest mm. of Thank you. Yeah. the little kids are dealing with? Right? Yeah, you want to repeat that or, yeah. or take that? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure if I can repeat it, but my point being is if we know that this is the face of what our churches are going to look like, Listen, folks, you're not going to stop it. It's going to come, but we need to be prepared for it. And I think that parents have an obligation and an opportunity. You do the educating rather than the kids in school and somebody else in the playground. If you start teaching your children the alternative situations that are out there and how to guard them from it and also how to help them to minister to this little girl that may be in their Sabbath school and to you know, not look at them like they're a freak from Mars because they have two mommies, but to understand it, but also to recognize that there's healing in that process too, right? Because that little girl deserves to know who Jesus Christ is also, right? Amen. And I think that a lot of times we forget that the children of these gay parents, they're victims too, right? They didn't choose necessarily to, to have these parents. I know the situation where a young girl 
was um, artificially inseminated by her lesbian parents, and every night before she goes to bed, she looks at the donor sheet of her father. Never met him, doesn't know who he is, but she sees other little kids that have fathers. She has a longing in her heart to have a father, and I mentioned, I said to her, have you told your mothers this? And she said, no, I wouldn't want to hurt their feelings. And so here's this little girl that's desperate to have a father, you know, fantasizes about what a father would be like and what her father would be as she looks at this paper every night before she goes to bed. So listen, we've got to recognize that, like what Ron said, we have to accept people where they are. Isn't that what Desire of Ages says? That Jesus met them where they were, right? He addressed their issues, and then he bid them to come and follow me, right? So I, I think that we can prepare our young people to know that this is coming and, and how is it that we can prepare a safe environment, a loving environment, so that they can find healing. What I love is uh, one of our colleagues, Wayne Blakely, belongs to a church in Oregon and a transgender came into his church a year ago. Now the church didn't necessarily address it very well or address it at all. And here this transgender was coming week after week. It was a male to female. <coughs> but how wonderful that even if the church didn't do it well, that this brother still got the same message. The Holy Spirit spoke to him, and he was baptized last weekend, and he's been living as a male again. He is actually scheduled for surgery in January to have his breast implants removed, and he's now living as a male. So again, isn't it our responsibility to provide an atmosphere where mm -hmm. someone can find out who Jesus Christ is? Mm -hmm. And what if a gay couple comes to the door with three or four children, and they want to know who Jesus Christ is, or the transgendered parents, you know? Are we gonna look shocked and, and awkward when we already know this is going on, yeah. right? So again, how is it that we can promote the gospel and provide healing for people? And I, I love the hospital analogy because we need to know the difference between leadership and, and ministry, right? You know, and, and, and I hate to use the word sick, but when the sick come in, and I was sick, I was soul sick, sin sick, right? When I came into the church and God was faithful to me and eventually I realized through studying the word of God that that I had to make a decision, was I gonna keep my boyfriend or my, or my Jesus, right? And as difficult as it was, praise God, he was more patient with me, and, and, and I came to the truth. So again, I think that if we baptize people before they've come to the, to the truth of the reality, then you're doing a disservice to them, and you're also causing a disservice to the people in the church that come in for healing too. Okay, we are going to need to wrap this up. Maybe, maybe one more question, and then we have two more days here or we can do more question and answer. Mike won't be here, and it'll be up to me, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Could you uh, compare and contrast the gay lifestyle to drug addiction? I'm sorry? Would you, can you compare and contrast the yes. gay lifestyle to drug addiction? Yes, homosexuality is an addiction, and, and I think that's a biblical principle because we, we read in the Bible about the bondage of sin. <coughs> sin is addictive. When we start indulging in sin of any nature, it becomes addictive. We're drawn back to it. And I know from my first willing experience in homosexual behavior, I was hooked. I mean, I had been victimized throughout my life on a number of occasions, but when I willingly participated, I knew I was mortified at what I had done, but I knew I'd be back. I was out of control from that very first experience. Yeah, it's highly addictive. Oh, and one thing, it's being referred to, actually. Homosexuality is being referred to as the experimental drug of this age. Everything else has been tried. Oh, here's another taboo. Let's push at this fence. They don't realize how addictive it is. Yeah. There's been an explanation uh, from a psychologist that said that there, 
are no homosexuals. They're merely people looking to affirm their gender identity. Again, remember, I, I didn't relate to my dad. The kids in school called me sissy, queer, and fag. So the one thing that was the most elusive to me was the one thing that I desired the most. If I would have been affirmed by masculinity from my father and the kids in school, then this is the immutable law. When you get to puberty, the sex that is the mystery becomes the attraction. So again, think about it. I was raised by a single mother and three sisters. I, was, I rejected my dad, but I was rejected by the kids in school. I never had male affirmation. I was desperate to know what that was like, but I was affirmed by girls. I played hopscotch and, and, and jump rope with the girls. So when puberty came, that law, that immutable law, is the sex that was the mystery wasn't women, it was my own. It became sexualized for me, and then eventually as I went into gay culture, again, the one thing that I was desperate for was to be affirmed by men. This, of course, got sexualized at puberty, so when I started to interact sexually with men, I didn't want to have sex with men. I just wanted to be held, I wanted to be loved, and I wanted to be affirmed by men. But the one thing that I realized early on is if I wanted to be held and loved by a man, I had to give in and participate in the sexual act. Now, it didn't take long before the sexual act became an addictive process for me because the, the holding and the loving only lasted for a very short time. That created the addictive drive for me, and within just a few short years, I had become a sexual addict as well. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah. Okay, we need to have a closing prayer. I, I know yesterday there was another seminar that came in, and we were infringing upon their time. So why don't we stand and we'll have a closing prayer. And if you have more questions, be back tomorrow and we'll, we'll try to address those as well. Mike, would you have our closing prayer? Oh, okay. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this time again to be together, to ponder your will, your way, your thoughts. Lord, this issue is taking over the world, it seems. Uh, we've been told, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the day when the Son of Man shall be revealed. We see this as a sign of the very soon coming of Jesus, and so we can rejoice for that. But, Lord, we need to know how to address this issue in a loving, compassionate, and a redemptive way. So many people are touched by this issue, and we just praise you for your word that is so clear and so powerful and uh, pray that you will help us to just stay in harmony with your word and uh, not be confused by all of the mixed signals that are coming in from every direction from the world and, and the world of science and the world of so the social world and the political world help us to stand faithful to you uh, to the very end and um, we just look for fruits of our efforts to reach out to not just the LGBT community. There are so many people around us in our spheres of influence that need these same principles because what we're talking about really is how to relate to and deal with the issue of sin. And we want to be uh, able to share the gospel of victory over sin through the love and the power of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. amen. I was in Alaska when you went up there for the uh, 